Hey, we want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us on the JF Podcast. It is our hope that this most recent talk teaches you, inspires you, and challenges you to live the life you were designed to live. If this message has helped you in some way, help someone else by sharing it. And if you want more information about who we are, what we do, or you'd like to contribute to our community, you can find us at JolietNaz.org. Thanks so much for listening. All right. Well, good morning, Juliet First. So good to see each of you this morning. We are in week two of this series, When Pigs Fly, and my guess is you've heard somebody use this statement before. Uh, I was talking to some of our younger folks this morning, and um, my younger folks back here, have any of you ever heard anybody use this statement? Yes, no, maybe so. Uh, Some of you are shaking your head yes. Have you personally ever used this statement, right? I think this is an old-timer statement. Maybe you have used it. Um, We've all used it at some point as a way of saying, there's a good chance there's a slim chance, right? When, when we say when pigs fly, what we're saying is there's a good chance, there's a sim, slim chance, and you've had your back up against the wall. Maybe it was a job promotion you wanted, or maybe you wanted to date somebody that was kind of out of your league or whatever it may have been, um, or maybe you were just trying to, to do well in school or whatever it may have been, and you just felt like your chances weren't, weren't very good, but you knew, you knew at the heart of it you had a slim chance of actually making it, right? And so you do what most people do, and that's you share your dreams with everybody else, and they look at you like you're crazy and, and a nut job. And so what they'll say to you is things like when, when hell freezes over, or in your dreams, or when pigs fly, or what they're really trying to say to you is it would take what? A miracle. That's right. It would take a miracle for this to happen. And so we've kind of wanted to start the fall off with a series about miracles because I think, I think so many of us, not just, it's not just like explainable in science, it's not just culture, but I think even in our own community and within the church world, we tend to downplay miracles. We tend to downplay miracles. And here's the truth. It's not that miracles don't happen. It's not that we can't see them. The truth is we're just not looking for them. I think the reason why we don't see miracles today, you know, like when God used to do miracles back then, is predominantly because you and I, just we're not looking for them. And that's just the truth. And so I've defined up front, I'll define it this week up front, a miracle as when God visibly intervenes on earth. When God visibly intervenes on earth. Now, I know that some of you may theologically disagree with me on this, and that's okay. I heard one pastor say, um, he said, when God in heaven comes down to earth. And um, I, I don't know, I just struggle with that because I think wherever God is, there heaven is. And, um, you know, if we want to go really deep, we know that Matthew kind of exchanges heaven for God and God for heaven. It's kind of the exact same. And so, you know, we just believe wherever God is, there heaven is. And we truly believe that God is here. He's not out there somewhere. And so we just say, hey, a miracle is when God visibly intervenes on earth, when you can see it, when you can touch it, and you can feel it. And I know that there are miracles that you may not necessarily be able to visibly see, but the majority of the time, for it to be a miracle, you have to see it. You have to see it. And so today, we're talking about what many of us want, what many of us need, and what many of us struggle with, which is miracles of healing. Miracles of healing. So, would you pray for me before we begin this morning? Lord, we give thanks for this time. And I pray that you would be, in the next few moments, the next few minutes, 
as we preach your word and we preach your gospel. I pray that you would give me the strength and the power and the wisdom and the words to speak your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know often I give Chicago a hard time. I don't often talk highly of Chicago. I do love Chicago. It's one of my favorite cities. But one of the things that I love about Chicago, and you should love about Chicago too, is our own Chicago Blackhawks. How many of you love hockey? Yes, we, we have some fans in here. Thank you. Um, more fans in this one than the last one. Uh, but I love hockey. We, our family was never big into hockey until we moved here. I didn't know what hockey was, a hockey stick, a hockey puck. We, just never, we were a football family. That's what we, you know, we prided ourselves on. But then we come here, and everybody loves hockey, and I sort of started getting into it, and we don't have the money for our kids to play hockey, so we just play hockey in the street. We have, you know, 15, 20 kids. We got the Nets old school style. When cars come, we sometimes get out of the way, or they just go around us, and, and we have a good time. Um, but one thing that's really cool is that my cousin, um, my cousin, his name's Chris, he is a chemical engineer. Uh, that was a nice way of saying he makes lots of money. And he has season tickets to the Chicago Blackhawks. Well, he moved to Cincinnati and decided that he would keep those tickets. And so occasionally, when he doesn't sell those tickets, he'll call me up and he'll say, hey, would you, would you like to buy these tickets for face value? Which, if you know anything about Chicago Blackhawks games, they're a little pricey. And so what he would typically charge somebody double or triple, uh, he just charges me for face value. And we've been able to go to those games. I've been able to take my kids, which has been fun. But one of the best parts... Now, I know you're going to be like, where's he going with this? Just hang with me. One of the best parts of the Chicago Blackhawks game is when they have the raffle ticket and the big old pot that gets, you know, put up on the screen. You know this. We get there really early when nobody's there and they're kind of still preparing the ice and they're just now getting the new nets on. And... But it's fun to watch as people buy tickets and it starts out really small, maybe a few hundred dollars. Next thing you know, as people show up and some of them show up, after the first period, I'm not sure why, but you pay all that money and you miss the game, doesn't make sense. But they show up in the first period, and next thing you know, this, this thing has grown from fifteen to twenty to thirty, even forty thousand dollars. And I would just say this up front. If I ever bought, I've never bought a, a ticket, but if I ever bought, hypothetically speaking, uh, from what I watched and observed, I know some of you say pastors out there gambling at Blackhawks games. No, um, just hypothetically speaking. If I were to buy a ticket, just based upon what I've heard, this is how I would feel. I would have the belief, I would believe genuinely that somebody is going to win this money. Right? You, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I would believe that somebody out there in this stadium of 40,000, whatever it is, people, somebody's going to win this ticket. But I also have unbelief that I have the winning ticket. Right, when you get that ticket and you buy that ticket, if you've ever bought a ticket, you're like, there's no way, there's no way this is going to happen. The chances of this happening are slim. It would take a miracle to get it, right? And so it's funny because when the announcer comes over to the, the PA and everybody gets out their numbers, there's this excitement. Everybody's excited. They know somebody's going to win, but they don't actually don't believe it's them. And the reason I know that is because the moment that those numbers come across the screen and the announcer announces the numbers, people don't get upset. They're not throwing haymakers at each other and kicking their neighbor because they didn't win. No, they just put the thing in their pocket because they knew there was unbelief that they would actually win the lottery. And I think this is a tension that we wrestle with over and over and over in our life is this tension of belief and unbelief. How is it that you could believe in something yet have unbelief in the very thing that you believe in? Does that make sense? 
And I think we wrestle with this. We have this tension of belief and unbelief. So let me just give a few examples because I think you, you'll get it. Uh, many of us uh, who have jobs uh, have had projects in our lives. And you have belief that you can get it done. Yet there's unbelief that you'll get it done in the time that your boss has asked you to get it done. Some of us, as we prepare for the SAT or the ACT, it is our goal, right, to get the score that we need to get into college. You have belief that it's possible you could get in. But there's unbelief based upon your study habits and how well you do on tests that you're actually going to make it. You have unbelief that you're actually going to make it. Last night, by the way, some of you don't know this. If you don't know this, where have you been? I'm a huge Ohio State Buckeye fan. And last night, I'm watching this game, and we are losing in the fourth quarter by two touchdowns. I even text all my family, text my brother and my brother-in-law. We're just a bunch of negative Nancys. And, and I remember just saying, this is the game. It's over. There was a small belief, because we did it last year, that we could come back. But there was a lot of unbelief that it would actually happen. Because when you're down two touchdowns to Penn State, and they have a great quarterback, good chance not going to happen. So I'm totally unbelieving in this. Yet, yet if you watch the game, and if you didn't, I don't care if you're a fan or not, just go watch the game. They came back and they won by one point. Nobody else is cheering on this. <laughs> All right, we got one, one Buckeye. Uh, <laughs> but in the game, I have this tension of belief and unbelief. And, and I think, let's just go just a bit deeper in a, for a minute. There are some of you out there, there are some of us in our faith who believe that God has great plans for us, but there's unbelief in the sense that up to this point, our life has just been average. You believe God has great plans for you, but yet you feel like your life is just, just average. Or maybe for some of you here, you believe that there's a God that exists, but there's unbelief because up to this point, you've had no proof for that to be true. And so today, as we talk about miracles of healing, as we talk about miracles of healing, which you all should be tuned in, because I know you all suffer from some sort of ailment, you should be, you wrestle with this, right? You go back and forth between, I believe God can heal, and unbelief that God won't heal. You, have, have you been here before? Am I the only one that's been here? We have this belief that it could happen, and there's unbelief that it's going to actually happen. I can remember as a pastor... A youth pastor, there was a young lady, she was about 13, 14, I was new to this church, and um, about a week into it, I get a call, and they said, hey, we want you to go up to pray with this young lady, she has internal bleeding in her stomach, and the doctors have no clue where it's coming from, they can't even stop it, they've given her all kinds of medication, they've tried, to, they're thinking about doing surgery, they don't know where it's coming from, and so they asked me to go up and pray, why you would put in your second string, I don't, I don't know, but they sent me, and I went up there, and I remember... I remember praying for this young lady, and the next day, her mom texts me, and she says, the bleeding has stopped. The doctors don't know why. We can't explain it, but the only thing that we can give it up to is that God has healed our daughter. And I mean, in that moment, you talk about believing that God exists. I was like, yes. I kid you not, within the same year, I go up to pray for somebody that's like, it's a routine deal, they're in the ER, although I guess being in the ER is not very routine, but anyway, when you're a pastor, that's just considered routine stuff anyway, so in the ER, and I'm thinking, not a big deal, I go up and pray for this guy, an hour later, he dies, and you're thinking, did I not pray enough, did I not read enough scripture, did I not have enough faith, did I not have enough belief in the prayer that I was praying for this man, like, 
what happened. And from one minute of believing that God can do it to the next minute of there's an unbelief that God will do it, we'll go back and forth and back and forth. And my guess is within your own life, where you've needed healing, or you needed God to show up, there's moments where he did, and there's moments where he didn't. And you're saying, how do we solve this tension? And here's the good news. We can't. Ha! We can't. But what's great is we're going to look at a story written by a man named Mark that's going to help us just give a little more insight and a little more understanding to this thing that you and I will continually wrestle with for the rest of our lives. So if you don't know Mark, if you're new today, you're new to the Bible, I know some of you are scholars and you already know all this, but just let me help everybody else out. Mark was one of the first writers of, of Jesus' story. He took Jesus' story and he wrote about everything that went on. But what I love about Mark's gospel is the intensity with which he writes. Mark is so intense that he, he confines Jesus' life into just about 16 chapters. It's the shortest, by the way, if you want to start somewhere in the Bible, don't start with John. If any good-meaning Christian tells you to start at John, don't start there because it's theologically like so deep, you just, you'll be like, what is he talking about? Start with Mark. It's short, right? Give yourself a chance, right? Start with Mark. But it, it's so short, but yet it's so intense about who Jesus is. And the reason why Mark writes with intensity about the life of Jesus is because there was, at this time, a lot of guesswork about who Jesus was. There was a lot of gossip. There was a lot of rumors. There were a lot of people who were saying things about Jesus that wasn't true. And so Mark, he just gets at it, and he begins to write about the life of Jesus. And he writes this story today because he knows, he knows that people long into history and long into the day that we live into today that all of us would struggle with what he writes about this morning and so let's get into it here's what mark says we're in mark 9 by the way if you want a bible there's one in front of you and you can take that one if you don't have one so here we are in mark 9 here's what jesus says or what mark says he says when they came to the other disciples and you should be asking who is they well it is jesus john james and peter they're all off doing something else which we'll get to at the very end so hang on to that when they came to the other disciples they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them them meaning jesus uh, disciples jesus other disciples that weren't with jesus wherever jesus was going um, as soon as they saw jesus they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him and it continues Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about? What is the commotion? What is the fight? Why is everybody screaming? He continues, a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son who was possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and he becomes rigid. It looks like the exorcist. And he says, now listen to this. I asked your disciples to drive out this spirit, but they could not. I asked them to drive out the spirit, but then he says, but they could not. Now, all of you, well, I shouldn't say all of you, some of you will be, and some of you are parents of children. And whenever our children are suffering, we want the best for them. So you can only imagine a father whose kid has been speechless from nearly the beginning of his, of his life, who is suffering, who is suffering, and he wants healing for his son immediately. He wants a miracle in his life. 
And so he hears about Jesus who's in the area and he takes his son and he goes to Jesus and when he gets to where Jesus is supposed to be, Jesus is not where he's supposed to be. And what he gets is his disciples, right? So his disciples try to do this thing. It doesn't work out. They start mocking the disciples. They're making fun of the disciples. They're saying, who do you think you are? You've been following this Jesus guy. Apparently there's no power. There's no capability for miracles. It's like this big fight going on. But that's not the point. The point is this, sorry, yeah, random rant. The point is, is that this father, in haste, in the middle of panic, in the middle of wanting to save his own son, settles for the second best option. He settles for Jesus' interns. My, my brother's a doctor, and uh, it's so funny. He was the chief resident at Grant Medical Center in Columbus, meaning, you know, he was responsible for all the interns and when they screwed up and scheduling and all that stuff. And he said to me once, he said, whatever you do, don't go to the hospital in August. And I said, well, why August? And he said, that's when everybody dies. <laughs> I said, well, why does everybody die in August? And he said, that's when all the interns show up. <laughs> But the truth is, is if you're having a heart attack, if you're having an aneurysm, if you have high blood pressure, if you just feel like you're about to die, you don't care if they're an intern. As long as they're wearing a white coat, you think they're qualified to take care of you. And honestly, honestly, this is what happens so often when it comes to miracles is we settle for the second best option. We settle for the second best option. Listen, I'm not against science. I'm not against medicine. I'm not against doctors at all. But when, when we are struggling with a sickness, with an ailment, with a disease, we start, we start there. We start with people. We start with pills. We start with professions. We start with therapists. We start with everyone else but Jesus. Oh, Jesus isn't here. He doesn't really care. He can't do it anyway. We'll just go with the second best option, which is the medical profession. I remember I was running with one of my best friends, and he, he said, uh, while we were running, he wasn't feeling well. He said, I don't care. I just want the doctor to just give me a pill and make all the symptoms go away. Wait, like, so you just mask the problem that you're having, and you're really actually not getting any better, right? I mean, that's really what you're doing. And, and I said, why would you, you know, dude, just get healthy. You don't need a pill to make you better. You just need to get healthy. But I think so many of us are quick, are quick to forget about Jesus and that he actually cares and that he's actually part of our story. And so we just tend to settle for the second best option, which, as I would tell you this, quit settling for the second best option and start with Jesus. Quit settling for the second best option. Again, not against medicine, not against science, not against any of those things. I understand that we live longer lives because of that. But rarely, rarely do we ever start with Jesus. We are quick to get on the phone and we are quick to make that doctor's appointment, but we are not quick to talk to Jesus about our struggle. And the reason why I want you to start here is because of this little thing called unbelief begins to settle in when we start with the second option. Unbelief and doubt begin to creep into our lives when we start with the medical profession. When we start with people other than Jesus. And here's why. Here's what Mark says. He continues this story, by the way. Jesus gets up. By the way, Jesus is so savage. You would never want him as your pastor. I promise you this. He stands up after everybody's been fighting. And he says, you unbelieving generation. 
How long shall I stay with you? How long, I love this, how long shall I put up with you? Now that's harsh. How long shall I put up with you? He continues, bring the boy to me. And so they brought him there. When the spirit saw Jesus, immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground. He rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked this question next. He says, how long has he been like this? The father answered, from childhood he's been like this. From the very beginning of his life he's been like this. It has often thrown him into the fire. You see the immediacy, right? That, that this father wants this kid healed. Throws him into the fire. In other words, this guy probably had burns all over his body. You ever been burnt by something? You ever noticed the scar that it leaves? Imagine having burns all over your body. This kid looked weird. He looked like a mess. Because he was constantly thrown into fires, constantly thrown into water, trying to kill him. And then the father says this. Say it with me now. But if, say it with me now. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now, here comes savage Jesus again. <laughs> Excuse me. If you can. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for the one who believes. And then he continues on. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, and this is where we are, and this is why Mark writes this to you and to me. He says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Do you resonate with this? Can you feel the passion of the father Lord, I believe, but man, your disciples really messed it up for you. I don't believe. They got it wrong. And I think that wherever there is unbelief, we always use this language of if. You, you've done this before? Have you ever used the word if before? I always use the word if. The other day, um, I had noticed um, what the medical experts would call floaters in my eye. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I did some research, you know, I, the internet is so, you know, it's just so you know, trustworthy. So I went out and did a little research and found out the truth. I had floaters in my eye and I thought, well, um, not a big deal. They said it wasn't a big deal. The internet said it wasn't a big deal, so it shouldn't be a big deal. A couple months go by and I'm, you know, trying to stare at them. You ever try to do this? You stare at them and it just makes you dizzy because they go off and you can't keep up with them anyway. But I noticed that I'm having more and more and more of them, and I'm starting to get concerned because I've read that if you have more of them, then likely there's a problem. And so, you know, I just settled for the second best option. I called the doctor, and then I got the second best, second best option, which was the PA. Nothing against PAs here, but I've just not had good experiences. And I go to the PA. I've said, hey, I'm feeling a little dizzy. She said, you got fluid in your ear. And then I said, I also am seeing, I know they're floaters. I can see them. And they're making me crazy because I keep chasing them, but I can't actually focus on them. And um, she said, well, how long has this happened? Oh, you know, a couple months, not a big deal. And she was not happy. She said, what do you mean it's not a big deal? This is your vision you're talking about. I said, yeah, I know, but I was on the internet. I looked, at, trust me, it's all right. I'm trying to crack jokes to kind of ease the, the, the news that she's about to give me. I can sense that she's not very happy. I'm trying to make jokes, and she's like, this isn't funny. She's like, I'm actually going to refer you to an ophthalmologist. 
And at that point, I'm like, okay, I don't know a lot about the medical field, but I know that there's like somebody in between the person that performs surgery on your eye. I think they're called like an optometrist. I have a brother-in-law who's an optometrist. And I thought, wait a minute, are we skipping a step? Like the, the ophthalmologist, that's the guy that performs surgery on your eye. Why do I need surgery? You haven't even talked about what's wrong with my eye. She didn't look in my eye. She didn't peek into my eye. She just said, you need to go see an ophthalmologist. So, I'm freaking out. You've done this, right? Now you've got to make an appointment for two, three, four weeks out. Do you know what four weeks will do to the human brain when you have no clue what's going on with your life? <laughs> so here it goes. This is my whole point of if. Well, if it's a big deal, if I have more floaters in my eye, it says here on the internet, and based upon the urgency of this doctor, um, if means it's probably cancer. And if I have cancer, there's a good chance that it maybe has spread to my brain because I read that on the internet too. And if I have it in my brain, I don't know that there's a good chance I'm going to live. And so if I have it, I actually need to look up the chances so I can prepare myself, which by the way, it's 80%, five years, you only have five years to live if you have cancer in your eye, just so you know this. Um, and so I was like, well, if I only have five years, what will I do in those five years? And if I die, Who's going to take care of my wife? If I die, will my kids have a great upbringing? I mean, I'm getting really, really nervous. And all of a sudden, for the next four weeks, my whole story, my whole mind, my brain was wrapped around this idea of if. What if? You, have you found yourself in the what ifs? And the reason why Mark tells us his story, and the reason why Mark tells us about this guy who questions Jesus and tells him about his unbelief and tells him he needs help overcoming is because he understands the story of ifs. You see, ifs are our unbelief. Ifs are our unbelief. And that's why savage Jesus stands up and says, what do you mean if? Is that all you've got? I mean, do you know who you're talking to if? And so I, I know this, is, this next statement is, is, it's truth, but it's so hard for us to get there. See, I know that faith, not ifs, moved the heart of God. I mean, Jesus himself says it. He says, if you can? I mean, really, if you can? How about if you believe? How about if you have faith? See, faith moves the heart of God, not ifs. But we live in the world of ifs. And I'm just telling you now, when you live there and you have a, a, a thing where you need healed or you have a medical thing or you have a circumstance you're questioning, when you begin to move into the ifs, do not live there. Don't settle for the second best option. And I know some of you are saying, how do I move to the faith part? Like, that's not easy. Brad, you don't know my circumstance. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know the healing that I need in my life. You don't get it. You're right, I probably don't. But here's what I do know. And this is so important when it comes to moving us from ifs and second options to faith. At the beginning of the story, Jesus, who by the way, we would... Initially, uh, for face value reading this, we would think is very rude 
to the people that are asking him for healing and the people that are standing around him says this, how long do I have to be with you, you unbelieving generation? How long do I have to be with you, you unbelieving generation? Do you remember the part where I said at the beginning, hang on to this because we're going to come back we're going to come back to it. Remember when it said when they arrived, when they arrived, when they arrived, and they were already there, and that's this whole lot of theys and thems, and we're talking about Jesus' disciples and the other group of disciples. And I said they were off somewhere else. Jesus wasn't there. He wasn't ready to heal this guy because he wasn't there. Well, it tells us, Mark tells us, that there was this thing going on up on the mountain. That Jesus was up on the mountain with those chosen few disciples, John, Peter, and James, and and something spiritual was happening. I can tell you the word. You look it up in the Bible. It's called transfiguration, which I have no clue what that means other than to say that something really cool and spiritual is going on. When I think of transfiguration, I think of lots of clouds. I think of decadent chocolate pouring out of the clouds. We're swimming in pools of hot lava chocolate, and we're eating white chocolate-covered cherries. And, you know, it's like that's what I envision in this spiritual moment. What, what, what do you envision during spiritual moments? That's what I envision, chocolate and clouds. But something is happening with Jesus' life. God is transfiguring him. He's changing his life before their eyes. All that to say, this is a very heavenly experience. This is a very godly experience. And Peter says, hey, this is so good, Jesus. Like, up to this point, you've created a mess for us. We've been beat up. We've been interrogated. Uh, you were talking about dying and all this stuff. I don't know what all this is about, but this is great. And I just want to stay up here. In fact, we'll just build an altar up here, and we can have this godly, heavenly, chocolate, decadent, cloud experience right in this moment, just for the rest of our lives. Jesus is up on the mountain, right? We're... By the way, all the other gods were. You know this, right? That this was believed. This up there is where those gods are that are out there. This is where Jesus is. And it's so interesting that Peter wants to stay there in that moment. But Jesus says, no, we have to go down. Like, as cool as this is and as cool as I look, you know, uh, and this is a lot of fun. We're all glowing and everything looks pretty and foggy. We have to go down. And my point is this, is Jesus leaves this mountain where all the gods are, where God should be, and he comes down into the middle of this little boy's mess. And this is the whole point he makes is, I am with you over and over and over and over again. And how long do I have to visibly intervene in your life? How long do I have to perform miracles over and over and over again for you to believe? I think if Jesus were here today, he'd say the same thing. How long have I been with you in your cancer? How long have I been with you in those mysterious symptoms that you can't seem to get rid of? How long have I been with you in your battle against diabetes, your battle against everything else that you're facing? How long have I been with you and yet you don't believe? Don't you know my son has already visibly intervened in this world? 
And he doesn't stay up on the mountain. He doesn't hang out where all the godly people are. He doesn't keep his distance from all the messy people and all the people who need help. No, no, no. And this is what's so important to the story. And this is what Jesus is trying to say when he's kind of giving them this rough statement. How long do I have to be with you? What he's saying is, I center myself in the middle of your suffering. I have centered my life in the middle of your suffering. And I don't know if you know this, but this is an act of grace. You will always wrestle with belief and unbelief. There are times in your life where you will be healed and you won't be healed. And I'm not saying that God won't when you pray for it. And I'm not saying that he will when you pray for it. But what I do know to be true is that he centers himself in the middle of your story. In the middle of that disease that you know is not going away. In the middle of that cancer that you know is going to take your life. In the middle of those circumstances where there are so many questions that even the medical professionals themselves don't have the answers for you, God has centered his life in the midst of that. And so here's the miracle. God's miracle of grace is the only healing you need. It's true. I know you thought today we were gonna like heal people and do crazy cool things. No. At the end of the day, the miracle that God has showed up and he's present in your life, that's an act of grace. God's miracle of grace is the only healing you need. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but um, some good news. Um, we're all going to die at some point. Even if God heals, that is good news. Like, even if God heals you, even if God makes you better, you're still going to die. Like Lazarus, y'all remember this guy? He was resurrected from the dead. Yep, he died. You remember the people on, on the day Jesus resurrected from the dead? There were other people that resurrected with him. Yep, they died too. Good news, right? <laughs> but you know this. We ultimately believe in a resurrection of life when God comes back, that we will all be restored. Our bodies will be made whole and life will be decadent chocolate and clouds. But right now, God's miracle of grace in your life, knowing that he is present with you, is the only healing thing that will get you through. So may God's grace be with you. So here's what I want you to do. We, we want you to do something with what we're talking about today. So we're going to have you wrestle with this tension of belief and unbelief. As you walk out, you'll be given a blindfold. And we would like for all of you to line up, and we're going to march across 52 totally kidding we're not going to do that that would be fun though wouldn't it we'd look like a bunch of weirdos crossing the street they drank the kool-aid uh, no i'm just kidding um but here's a practical step right every week we face doubts and questions it doesn't even have to be about the medical thing it doesn't have to be about something you want healed the truth is all of you have doubts in your life about something and i think what we tend to do is we tend to repress those doubts we, we kind of push down those questions and we just say, 
if I really have faith, then I really shouldn't have those doubts. But I want you to know, you have belief, but you have unbelief. And part of overcoming unbelief is actually talking those out. And so here's the challenge. I want you to grab, uh, if you journal, grab a journal. If you don't journal, grab a sticky note or a napkin or a piece of toilet paper or, or anything that is tree product related since we've killed the rainforest already. Um, just grab something. And what I want you to do is I want you to write down, physically write down the doubts that you have about God, about his ability to heal you, about his ability to help you. It could be doubts about whether God, I want you to write them down. And then I want you to voice those. I want you to voice those to the people around you. Just have a dialogue. You won't have answers. I don't have answers. We don't have answers. But just talking through it is an acknowledgement. It's a way of overcoming what we struggle with. So write it down, talk about it. The best way to do that is in a small group. If you don't have a small group, find somebody to talk with. But I would say in your groups this week, as you meet, one of the practices that we want to we invest our lives in is talking about our doubts and our questions. It's a place to do it. So we'll be doing that this week. But write it down and talk it out. And I want you to know, don't ever settle for the second option. Don't ever settle for ifs. Always start 